Good evening, Hope. Good to see everybody. We're going to be in Ephesians, so can you please open up there? Ephesians chapter 6 is our text for tonight. As we look at the, uh, uh, the, the, the commands of Paul towards slaves and masters. <clears throat> Let me just start out by reading it. This, uh, this, this great and this helpful passage with which Paul, Paul starts apply, uh, as, uh, continues his process by which he's been applying what, what Christians who have been saved by Christ should be living like. And here's what he says towards bondservants, your version might say, slaves, whatever it says. We'll, we'll explain what it all means. Here's what he says. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will to the Lord, and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a slave or he is free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. May God bless his own word in our midst this evening. Amen Amen and amen. Our passage tonight comes to us from a a world away as far as culture and context goes. We are we're pretty geared that as we hear something like this from the ancient world, we're gonna we're gonna jump up and get very awkward about the use of the language of slavery here. And there's there's gonna be necessary contextual questions to answer. But 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 before we think that slavery is something of the past, I was I was reading a blog this week and somebody was talking about how how it's so evil that that that, that, that Paul, this this apostle, these Christians, this 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 Bible, it speaks to a world in which there is slavery, and, uh, and it doesn't even uh, decry against it all, etc., etc., you know, you know the, the sensitivities they would have had. And they said something like, uh, you know, now that we're in a world without slavery, we know that we can, we can evolve beyond the kind of commandments that a, that a slave tolerator like Paul would do. I don't think this person understands the world that we live in at all. There has never been a day in all of human history, since God said, let there be, that there hasn't been more slaves than in the present day right now. Our social society, our structure, our economy, we may not employ or or enslave people in camps here in Australia, but your internet, many of our phones, too many of our clothes, the entire global structural system as it now stands would collapse if overnight slaves were all released. Now, that is by no means an advocate from me or an advocation for the reality of slavery. That is simply to open our eyes to the fact that there has never been a generation in human history where people have not abused other people by making them slaves in some way. And so the question is not merely, do you agree with it? Like there's some kind of virtue signaling points that you get for putting your hand up and saying, I don't think slavery is good. Good job. Right? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that is biblical. But, but, but Paul is not going to uh, fish for sympathy or, or virtue signaling points at this point. He's going to do what any wise minister of the gospel needs to do and say, this world largely sucks. 
All right, people are the problem, and wherever people are, wherever society is, there will be sin that enslaves and sin that abuses and, and mistreats all kinds of people. Now, as Christians in this world, assuming we can't fix it with the snap of the fingers, what should we then do? How should we then live? And so it is that context into which Paul starts writing about how to be a good and God-honoring slave and how to be a good and God-honoring slave master. Now, as we look at Roman slavery, which was the, the kind of slavery in the day that Paul was writing, there, there is a lot of distinctions between if we were going to, to study the Old Testament and see the slavery allowed by God and conditioned by God, there, there is a lot of differences between Old Testament Hebrew Israelite slavery and what we see as Roman Empire slavery. One of those differences, or a few of those differences, is that in Hebrew slavery, it was never a race-based uh, uh, idea, and, and neither was it really in Roman times. As a, so this is how they're different to what was a, a sub-modern, like fairly recent history of chattel slavery and transatlantic slave trade, which has been a, a kind of thing going on all throughout human history. That kind of man-stealing, when they take people from their homes or, or they're taken by some of their neighbors and then sold to other people, that came under the death penalty in the Old Testament. That, that is a, a slavery that the Bible does not commend or allow in any degree. We see that in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament when God commands man stealers be killed. Uh, we have all sorts of differences between Hebrew slavery, Roman slavery, and, and, and the, the, the slave trades of recent uh, centuries in the West. But something about Roman slavery that, that might uh, uh, surprise us is that many of the slaves who were slaves in the day of Rome of which there was tens of millions. It's estimated that anywhere between a third up to about 40% of the entire Roman population was in fact a slave. So this is a huge amount of the empire. And it is, uh, history shows us that most people, most people who were slaves in that day could expect that at some point in their life they would receive manumission or emancipation. In other words, they could expect that at some point in their future, they would stop being slaves and they would be released from the, the bondage they are now in. Uh, that was not the case in chattel slavery or, or where slaves today are taken and, and put to work until their death. Also in Rome, the slavery that, that Paul is in the context of is not race-based slavery. It's not merely uh, uh, some kind of Darwinian evolutionary kind of uh, informed practice where they enslave the, the other races which are of, uh, of lower class or lower evolution. It's nothing like that. In Rome... They, uh, they, the slaves often had high-tier responsibilities. That is, that some of them were in the households and they were teachers or they were, they were household doctors or they were accountants, things like this, that they would be entrusted or, 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 or looking after the children. They were entrusted with, with, with uh, uh, highly responsible roles and they could be trained. The, 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 it's as if their master would like send them to tape. They would pay and supply so that their slaves could be trained in certain things so that when emancipation came and they weren't slaves anymore, they could get a higher paying job and have some kind of livelihood. So even though this was all the case in Roman slavery, I don't want to be naive and try to paint the picture that slavery just wasn't all that bad in Rome. It was pretty good. I don't know what you're all complaining about. Not at all. Slavery in Rome did allow, however, horrible treatment of the slaves. 
you had zero legal rights while you were a slave, which meant that while your master might treat you very well and give you all sorts of opportunities, they may also be treating you harshly, exploiting you, beating you, killing you at their will, or sexually abusing you. They had, uh, you could be punished at your owner's total discretion because you were a piece of owned material to them. Some of the, the Roman writers, even Seneca, he, he spoke of, of the tools that we use in our labor, and we have the tools that breathe and the tools that don't breathe. Slaves to him are just a, an element of some part of your work. That's all they were to much of the, the Roman world. Now, Roman slavery was worse than Greek slavery, and Greek slavery was much worse than the Hebrew slavery. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, in, in Rome, uh, sometimes you became a slave because you were born into slavery. Your, your dad was, a, uh, he was an enemy, and in war he lost, and so he was taken back to Rome. Uh, maybe you were born into slavery. Maybe you lost a battle and became a slave of Rome. Uh, 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 or maybe you were stolen, and uh, you were taken out of your home and sold uh, uh, what, what would be illegal today. Uh, but in Rome, it was illegal to run away. In God's system, in where, where people would enter into what we call indentured servitude, in other words, if you are on the rocks financially and you owe a large sum, you can say to the person that you owe or to somebody else who is wealthy, you can say, can I work for you for a period and I'll belong to you and I'll do all the work, whatever it may be, so that we can pay off this large debt that I had. And in God's law, that, that you could never be in that indentured servitude for longer than six years. Every seven years, there was a release of all slaves back to their homeland. You had to be treated well. And if you ran away, the person who found you was not allowed to take you back to your slave master. Was not allowed to take you back to the, the father of the household because they assume slavery is meant to be, this bond-servant relationship in Hebrew uh, 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 design was meant to be a mutually beneficial arrangement. If you're running away, it must be abusive abusive and hard, so you would rather the risk of, of being in debt than indentured in slavery, and so you weren't allowed to actually return them, you had to look after them. It wasn't the same in Rome. Because you belonged to your master, who was the, the pater familialis, that is to say that you were the father of the household, you were the, the head of the home and family, that included slaves who were under you, they belonged to you. If they ran away, you could be killed. And so, this is the institution into which Paul writes and tells Christians how to live. Now, we could try and get into Paul's head and ask him, what does he think about slavery? I'm not going to pretend I can speak for the apostle, but I believe biblically that we could say, Paul does not love slavery. Pretty, pretty, you can amen that if you want, or say, oh, phew, you can at least take a, take a breath of fresh air. Paul is not an advocate of slavery. When Paul comes into this household code, when he starts saying, here's what Christianity looks like at home. We know that he addressed wives and husbands. We know that he addressed uh, parents and children. And now he's also addressing the slave because the slave would be a part of that larger household. When he addresses husbands and wives, he gives theological foundations for their relationship. And he says, this is a part of God's design. When he speaks of parents and children, he gives theological foundations to this relationship and says, this is a part of God's design. When he gets to masters and slaves, he does no such thing. He doesn't say, you know, this goes all the way back to the, to the Garden of Eden. He doesn't say that here's the theological, biblical uh, foundation of God's design for slavery. Calvin called it an unnatural institution. 
It only exists because of sin in really any form other than what we could call indentured servitude or, or paying off a debt, which some of us are even familiar with, whether it's uh, working for the military or, or, or having a, a debt that we're, uh, a, a, a novated lease or something like that. Like, there's, there's comparable things in today's world. But, but <clears throat> Paul does not look at this institution as anything biblical, as normative or in God's good design. He never defends slavery. Obviously, he knew it was a result of the fall, and and he says in 1 Corinthians 7, actually, he says, if you can, if you're a slave, you don't need to stop being a slave to be a Christian. Jesus is still your Lord. You can go to heaven even if on earth you're a slave. But he does say, if you can at all legally get yourself out of slavery, then by all means do it. And that's because in slavery, in an indentured servitude, it would come with a a loss of freedoms. It would come with a a difficulty to be your own person and make decisions for Jesus and go on mission and to, to serve the church in ways when you are so restricted by them. And so he says, if you are free, don't as a Christian, don't ever become a slave. So it's obvious in Paul's mind from 1 Corinthians 7 and other places that he's not a fan of slavery and he doesn't think it to be a natural good. He could see the evil treatment of people in his day throughout slavery. And we can assume that he hoped for a day that it would be eradicated. We know this. We know that Paul hoped for a day that his neighbors and his brothers and sisters would stop being mistreated through the sin of slavery. However, he knew it wouldn't happen immediately. The church wasn't given by God any avenue to be able to immediately change the laws of the land. uh, He did not have the ability. Uh, In fact, he explicitly commands against rising up in a revolt, you know, lead the the millions of slaves in a slave revolt and overturn this unjust institution and in Marxist revolution. He doesn't command that. He explicitly demands the opposite. So that that avenue is not given to the church. The other avenue that is not given to the church is some kind of immediate uh, magistrate power. Jesus doesn't come on the scene and say, since I'm king of kings, the pastors, apostles, and ministers get to rule the nations. He doesn't do that. And we should say, we should understand that even if Paul could have done that in a moment, I don't think he would have. Even if he could eradicate slavery in a moment across the empire, he wouldn't have. And the reason is because there would have been much higher human suffering if the entire Roman Empire was flipped on its head and lit on fire through the immediate abolition of its entire economic system, that the existence of it and working through it is a better option than an immediate uh, 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 abolition of it because there would have been more people. In fact, uh, I believe it was uh, Emperor Gaius who was actually telling slave owners in Rome, he was saying, that's it, stop releasing so many of your slaves. Here is a 30-year age limit on releasing slaves. He, He made some other rules like that. And what that shows us is that is that it was not good for the Roman system to have too many unemployed people. Obviously, it would lead to all kinds of unemployment, uh, uh, houselessness, damage to families, the entire ecosystem, the entire government would be taken up with, with feeding those people that no longer have masters. So not only did Paul hope for a day slavery would be gone, he didn't have the avenue to eradicate to eradicate it immediately. And even if he could have, he wouldn't want to because it would cause more human suffering that way. Instead, what he does 
is that he sows the gospel seeds. He preaches the word of God, which become those seeds that flower into the very thing that undermines and eventually eradicates slavery from society in the first place. That is that he sows uh, doctrines and teachings of the equality of human beings. He, he suggests, even in the book of Philemon, in Holy Scripture, there is the, uh, the, the, the strong suggestion to a Christian man who owns a slave to release him and, and not consider him as, an, as somebody he owns, but simply a brother. So the Bible in the New Testament is very countercultural in the way that it pushes back against all of the mindsets and ideologies that led to slavery in the first place, and yet he doesn't call for immediate revolution. There's a, there is a principle here. There's a principle to be, to be uh, uh, followed from Paul in our own life, which is, which is that as we look around our world, much like Paul in the Roman Empire, and we see a world that is just set on destroying itself in sin, and some of these are, are idiotic, ridiculous, uh, tyrannical uh, things that are handed down from globalist elites, some of this stuff is just, is just ridiculous acts of, of, of foolishness and sin as it comes from the immoral, immoral multitudes and its grassroots up. Whatever it may be, you can look around the world and there is almost nothing you can do about it. As far as an individual goes, there is all, in your lifetime, just get, get, get this through our heads, there is probably almost nothing you can do about any of the problems you see out there in the world but you can immediately change your home. You can immediately change your own church life and involvement. You can immediately change your living and the way that you live under the Lordship of Christ in your employment. Paul, so he doesn't call for worldwide revolt of all the Christians and all the slaves. Instead, he teaches people how to live within the exist, existing structures to the glory of the Lord Jesus, knowing that as Christians live under the Lordship of Christ, the kingdom of Jesus cannot help but eventually influence mightily the kingdoms of the world. That's what we saw happen. That as Christianity spread, the gospel liberated people's minds and souls, and, and people saw each other in different lights, so slavery began to wane in the Roman Empire until it was no more. And we praise God that everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere the Bible and the word of God goes, eventually there becomes the kind of equality between humans that, that breeds the, the liberation of slaves and the abolition of slave trade. So, so that's the, the sort of cultural contextual background for Ephesians 6. Given all of that, now let's ask the question, so what does Paul say to a slave? If you're a Christian, you've come in tonight, you've been saved at some point, you've, you've been baptized, you're a Christian, and your question is, how do I honor Jesus as Lord in my current life space? And his answer is firstly, as we look at verse 5 and following, firstly, it is know who you are in Christ. This is the most important thing, the most practical thing you can do in life is know who you are in Christ because of the gospel. That sounds uh, theoretical. That sounds hyper-spiritual and ethereal. No, this is the grounds for all change in all of your life. First, know who you are in Christ. And he speaks in such a way to the slave as to demand that they get their relationship with Jesus drilled into their eyeballs. So, so in verse 5 and following, he says that the slaves are slaves of Christ. He says, 
to serve as you would serve Christ. He says, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. He says, as to the Lord, you should work. He says, you will receive back rewards from the Lord. He says multiple to, in almost every single verse that he speaks to the slaves, he reminds them, you are ultimately and primarily, before you are anybody else's employee or slave, you belong to Jesus. This touches every element of your life. You belong first and foremost to Jesus. No matter how, who else may mistreat you, Jesus has treated you with dignity and saved your soul from hell. That's, that's first. Serve him, not just your boss. As a child of God, walk in the way that God commands and know that you, uh, in whatever you do, Jesus remains your Lord high above and more deeply than any human master. In our society, the, the, the equivalence of this, if we could paint any for slavery, other than the millions of people that are literally slaves, but if, if we're looking in our own society, probably the people that might sit closest to this relationship would be men in the military, men and women in the military. That is that you have people that you have voluntarily given up your freedoms to, and there's a lot of things you now go without, and they are are not really required, even if the paper says they should. They're not all that required to treat you very nicely. Uh, they, they kind of enjoy not doing that, and so do your mates. And so you've given up freedoms, and, and, and you're in a kind of bond-servant uh, authority relationship. Or maybe prisoners. Maybe rightly or wrongly, Christians are in prison. You got put there wrongly, or, or you had a, a bad day, a very bad day, or you got saved in prison. And, and Paul would say to you, you are somebody under total authority, but you are first of all a slave of Jesus Christ, and he owns you by the purchase of his blood. Or maybe in a, in a simpler term, uh, in a, with less similarity to the slaves, who could say any apprentice or any employer at all, basically any Christian that is not self-employed or owning your own business, you will in some measure be able to imbibe the spirit that Paul says here, that before you're an employer to somebody else, you're a slave of Jesus. You belong to Jesus. That is who you are most fundamentally. So whatever your employment, your income, and despite how much freedoms you have, you are, your most important definitional identity is that you belong to Jesus, and this transforms our entire theology of work. Coming out of the Protestant Reformation, there became this doctrine of, of vocation. In that word vocation, you can hear uh, uh, similarities with the word vocal, right? Voca is that, is that idea of a calling. And so when we speak of a vocation, we mean that we've been called to something by God. Now, the Catholic Church only really had one avenue by which God called people to serve him, and that was the monastic priests and those who would, the monks who would divide themselves from society and go and serve Jesus and be married to Jesus and, 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 and eat almost nothing and enjoy almost nothing and just enjoy being a servant of Jesus. That's your calling. Now, of course, you plebs, as they would literally say, the, 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 the plebs or the, the hoi polloi in the, in the, uh, in the Latin, they would, they would say, you... You are fairly useless, but in heaven, you might be less useless after purgatory, if some of you get there, but uh, you're, 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 the way that you can benefit the kingdom is by giving money to the priests. They have the calling from God to serve, and you are all just the necessary cogs and pipelines in the sewage and the machines. That's all you are. You have to do it, because otherwise how will the priests live? Right? And you have to do it, because otherwise who would build the cathedrals? You have to do it, because society needs it. But there is no eternal significance in your work. 
All the eternal significant work is being done by the called ones. What Luther said was that there is not such a thing as the spiritual job and the unspiritual job. He says there's such a thing as spiritual people who work and unspiritual people who work. You could work for the church and, 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 and be, look as holy as possible, but if you're not in Christ Jesus, you're not a spiritual worker, your work's irrelevant. You can be somebody who polishes shoes or who empties pipes or who lays down cabling or who teaches children, but if you're a spiritual person in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're his slave, you are called to that labor to glorify God, and therefore every ounce of your labor in your nine-to-five week is eternally significant, and it is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther used to, used to advise Christians, as you go to work today, as you wake up and it's cold and you don't want to get out of bed and you, you don't love the work you do, remember, as you walk to work and as you get on the horse and carriage, or for us, as you tag onto the bus and as you, you swipe into work and as you jump in the car and going down the M1 at one mile an hour, as you do those things, remind yourself what Luther would say, today I serve the Lord. Today, my work is serving the Lord. Today, my job is working for Jesus. That's the most important part of you and your, a part of your identity, no matter what other job you, you do. And then secondly, he says, not just to remember that you are ultimately a worker for Jesus, but he also says, you need to work for your earthly masters with sincerity, with genuineness. So he says, he says here, uh, do it with sincerity. He uses the phrase, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. You see, it was very common in Roman slavery to, to work hard when the boss was watching so you don't get a beating, but to work against his, his will whenever he's not watching, to, to hate him and despise him and steal from him and gossip about him and plan a downfall for him and do as little as you can for him because who is he to have rights over you? And that's a, a very understandable mindset for somebody in slavery. And Paul says, instead of doing that, Seek your master's benefit as much as you can. Work hard genuinely from your heart because you love him as your neighbor. And if you don't consider him your neighbor, then do what Jesus said and love him as your enemy. See, there's no way out of this. And love him as much as possible by seeking his benefit. No, no, no slave master would look at a better bottom line, at a higher income and a more productive household, and then beat the slave for it. He says, if you want to see rewards and blessings, then, then work hard. They will enjoy it. But even if they don't, and even if you don't get rewarded, it is the right thing to do. Work with sincerity, not by way of eye service. In our modern world, we have, we have uh, workers, and maybe this is you, maybe this is a friend. I pray it's a friend, not you. But there's people in every office or in every uh, industry that, that earn the name of motion light. You use this in your office. We used to call a couple of the guys in my line of work, we used to call them motion lights, right? They only work when somebody walks past them. Uh, and the rest of the time, they're sitting on their phone or, or they're going through car sales or they're playing Minecraft or they're doing whatever they're doing. They, they don't do anything unless the boss is walking past. And Paul says that is just, that is as far from the Christian work ethic as you could get because your master is literally always watching. 
Jesus is your master. He is always looking over your shoulder. He is always literally standing on the other side of your desk, watching what you are doing, and ready to give rewards or, um, or, or punishments for how we treat our masters or our employers, our bosses. And then the third part that we've, we've, we've touched on is in verse 8, when he says that if you do this, if you work hard genuinely from the heart, whether you're an apprentice, uh, a tradie, uh, you work in a big business, corporation, small business, whatever it be, you work hard for your boss's sake, for your sake. Verse 8 says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or he's free. In other words, we could say this, and this is practical Proverbs-type wisdom. If you're a worker, it is, it is not hard these days to be the best worker in the workplace because most people in our upcoming generations do not know how to work. They were not spanked enough. They were not taught enough. I don't know what it was, but the Disney Channel has raised a horrible task force in our workplace. And, they do, and so if you are just a Christian who can go, I'll follow the instructions... I won't sit around on my phone, and I won't take hour-long lunches when I'm given 35 minutes. You will be amazed at how quickly you just float to the top, because that is above and beyond. Bare, bare minimum is above and beyond these days. So you get into the workplace, you just decide, I'm going to be the best worker, the greatest team member, the, not, not, not boss's pet, right? Not, not, not kissing their shoes and, and, and trying to worship the ground your boss goes up. Not as man pleases, Paul says. Not as I pleases, but as those who genuinely know I was made to work. Jesus gave, God gave work to Adam before the fall. I'm going to be working in glory. I've been, it's a part of my image of God that I reflect him in work, in creative, productive work. So give me something to glorify God with. When that's your mindset, your boss will reward you. They will, even if they're purely selfish, they will want your hard work to get them more money. And even if they don't, and they are so foolish, they're such jerks that they are, they are even self-disinterested. They will rather demote you, though you could get them their job, better money. Even if that's the case, Jesus watches, and he will give rewards, either in this life or in heaven, when he, and glory when he returns. That's what verse 8 says. Work hard for the reward knowing that it's Jesus who will give you something, whether you're slave or whether you're free. Jesus will reward your work. And then he goes to the slave masters. And it's very intriguing that Paul speaks to the slave masters as if they're in church because he just knows the real world that he's speaking to. And he knows that in that generation, there will be people who were slave masters and, and then got saved, and they still, still own people. Or it is even the case that since they've been saved, they're going along with the custom and they acquired people to work for them through slavery. Now, I would say 90% of the time that anybody owned a slave in the ancient world of Rome, it was a sinful thing. But there would be those avenues where it is more biblical indentured servitude. I'll live with you. You tell me what to do and where to go and when to do it and you will pay off my debts and I'll get training with you. Something like that. But 90% of the time, yes... They would have become slave masters through sin, but he still just speaks to them and gives to them principles that equalize and dignify the slave-master relationship. He goes from what is by nature an abusive system, and he says, you can turn it into a system of employment. 
He basically gives principles here that make it, make it look. If we were to be watching it, we would say he's not acting like a slave master. He's acting like a, like a loving boss. He's not acting like a slave. He's acting like a, like a hard-working employee. And, and the principles that he gives to the master here in verse 9 and following, uh, and, and some of these through the whole passage, first of all, he, says, he shows the principle that both slave and master are both dignified. In other words, they're worthy of an address. We miss this in our day, but the commentators say, and, and, and you can read early church fathers saying this, that this was, this was shocking. If you're sitting in the church, and then the, the pastor's reading the latest letter from Apostle Paul, and he in public addresses the slaves, that is mind-blowing. You, you, don't, you don't give them names. You, you don't talk to them in public. They're just a part of the furniture. Uh, his, his name is Cupholder. Why are you addressing him? This is what Paul does. He, goes, he speaks to them and actually addresses slaves personally as a minister of the gospel. That is to say that he dignifies them. That if the master is sitting there and he doesn't dignify his slaves, he's realizing very quick, oh, I, I need to treat them as a person. They're an equal before Paul's eyes. And that's exactly what we see next. We see it in, the, in verse uh, uh, 9 here. Towards the end, he says, both their master and yours is in heaven. He just put the slave master and the slave onto the exact same line in God's eyes. And what is it called when you think of something in a way differently to how God thinks of something? Wrong, right? He goes, oh, to God, me and him are equals. I don't see me and him as equals. God's wrong. I'm wrong. That's the the fundamental realization of equality that was coming through. By even saying, your master and their master are both is in heaven, you realize we're on the same tier in God's eyes. Then who am I to be putting him beneath me as as belonging? Who am I to be degrading his humanity if he is Jesus' master? Could you imagine the, the, well, in fact, the legally uh, uh, indentured uh, rights that you had as a slave owner, that if somebody else took or mistreated your slave, you could exact from that person punishment and a fine. And here's the slave owner on, on earth realizing, if I mistreat my slave, I'm mistreating a slave of Jesus, and he's, he's bigger than me. He's got a bigger whip than me. Let's just leave it at that. He's got bigger feet, bigger hands. I'll lose this one. The slave owner starts realizing very quickly, I'm mistreating somebody else's slave, and I am making myself an enemy of the king of heaven. But he also says here, thirdly, all slave owners are under authority. It's not just that slave and master are equal, and that, and that the slave is under Jesus, he's realizing that I am a man under authority. I don't just belong to myself and I can't just treat people however I wish. He, is a, he has a master in heaven, verse 9 says. So the slave master is under authority. And then he tells him, basically, give to your slave the golden rule. The golden rule of Jesus' teaching. When he says, treat others the way you would want to be t- treated. And Paul, in, in what he says about the, 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 the slave master's treatment of his slave at this point, he basically says the same thing. Treat him in exactly the same way. You know, look, look at verse 9. It says, masters, do the same to them. So wait, do what? Do what to them? What's the same? Everything I just commanded the slaves, you do as well. Do you see, he doesn't even dignify the slave owners to give them their own list. He just says, read their book. Read their notes. 
because I've already told them what to do, and you do the same thing. Okay, well, what's the difference? Because they're slaves, I'm a master. How, how do you do the same? Well, you rule with fear and trembling towards Jesus, if they need to obey with fear and trembling to Jesus. Or if they are to have a, a sincere, uh, the slave masters needed to have a sincere heart as you would Christ. In other words, how would you te- treat Christ if he was your slave? The, the slave needs to remember, how would I obey, how hard would I work if Jesus was my master, since he is. The slave master needs to ask the question, how would I treat Jesus if he was the one under my employment? Because in a sense, he is. This person represents Jesus person is a member of Jesus' body. Or even you could go around the other way and ask, how would Jesus treat this person if they were his slave on earth? To which the immediate answer is, he wouldn't have a slave on earth. He wouldn't have this Roman system of ownership over another person like that. And so the the, the applications become very quick. Or he says, he could be saying to them the same thing. Don't rule well by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. So, so treat your slave at all times as if Jesus was watching over you because he is. He says to them, do the will of God from the heart. As you're ruling over your slaves, do earnestly, sincerely, the will of God from your heart knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Do you hear the the implied threat there as well? And if you own people and you don't do good for reward, but you treat them evilly, guess what you're going to get back from the Lord? Discipline, consequence, and punishment. And so the, the application we can really see here is for employers. If you're a, a boss or a CEO or, or, or you have apprentices with you or you oversee laborers or you oversee any kind of staff and you are an employer, you are entrusted with overseeing people in their calling from God. It is, it is your role to help people, especially Christians, but it's your role to help all people that work for you glorify God in this design that God gave to them and this command that God gave to them to work hard. So it's your job to make sure they're working hard. It's your job not to be soft and not to be limp-wristed and not to let them walk all over you. You be a good boss and give order and structure to your system so that people can honor God and image God by working hard. They're called to make a living, benefit society and glorify God. You are called to make that act of obedience a joy for them. Not necessarily easy not breaking a sweat but a deep joy in their service. Do not work against the commands of God. Secondly, Jesus rewards hard work. Do you? Jesus says, through Paul here in verse 8, whatever you do, you will be rewarded by Jesus because he rewards hard work. The question then comes to employers, do you reward hard work? Or do you just hope they don't ask that they keep on working this hard and not asking for a raise or promotion or other opportunities because you don't want to have to deal with that? Do you see good, hard work, people who are glorifying God in their vocation, in their labor, working the ground to glorify God through taking dominion, all those things, do you see that and reward it? Or do you give the job to the friend or the son of of a friend or to the person who might slip you bribes or be easier to control? Do you reward Hard work. Christian employers should imbibe this ethic from Jesus to reward hard-working employees. And thirdly, do not cause them to sin. 
If you employ Christians, are you making it hard for them to have Sundays off? You need to consider that. You're causing them to sin. If you're an employer, are you putting them into knowingly difficult, uh, tempting, almost sinful or outright sinful situations? Asking them to lie for you. Asking them to dodge out on the tax form. Asking them to just not tell you so that things can keep on going illegally and you have that, that uh, uh, some kind of uh, 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 ignorance in the, in the courts. Don't turn a blind eye to unjust behavior or illegal work in your employment. Rather, require righteousness and build a structure and atmosphere of God-glorifying work ethic in your employment. Are you treating them the way Jesus would treat them if he was their boss? Or are you treating them, even deeper, the way you would treat Jesus if he was employed to you in his incarnated life on earth? The Christian employer has a tremendous opportunity to glorify God and help others do so. And, and, and Paul, what the, the, the one commandment that he gives to the, the, the masters here is do not threaten. Don't rule by the rod. Don't rule by, 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 by intimidating. Don't rule by bullying. And of course, in the, in the day then, for those masters, rule by teaching and, and telling them what you need, not chasing them around with, with threats and making them fear for their lives as was so common in the Roman day. So, so, so we serve a king, don't we? We serve a king of kings who rules all and who, who makes us, all those who believe in him, to be his slaves. And yet, we're told... He first came as a slave, which means that you could be the most, the most uh, down and dirty, disrespected, marginalized, oppressed uh, person in society, and Jesus, the king of all kings on the shiniest throne there's ever been, can look at you and say, I literally know what your life feels like. I was an obedient slave to God doing whatever he required me to do. I became the most despised and hated person on earth. I was treated like scum. They preferred a murderous revolt leader instead of me. They butchered me on a cross after spitting on me naked, pulling out my beard, and made a shame of me in front of my family, my peers, and all of my, 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 my generation. Jesus can say to the lowest of us, I became a slave. He has been lower than any one of us has. And yet he can say to those who are, who are lifted up, who, who are blessed, who are wealthy as we all are on the global scale, and he can say to us, I have become poor so that you might become rich spiritually. He has given down his authority in order to die for us. Are we imbibing, imbibing that kind, same kind of gospel imagery in our leadership and in our authority? The, the call towards Jesus Christ is a call to future glory. Some of us are trying to live for human glory, live for worldly glory, live for glory in this life. And Jesus says, I will give you glory in the future. But first he calls us to die. He says, first you have to die to yourself and die to the world and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the sacrifice of sins, for the payment of your penalty, for the atonement and satisfaction of God. Come to Jesus, die to earthly glory, die to selfish ambition, and then no matter what state you live on in this life, Jesus will be with you. Jesus treats you as a master, a loving, kind employer, and a king. He protects you, and he leads you on into the future to glory. This is the, this is the question for Christians. Are you working and employing others like Jesus would? And to the non-believers, 
Have you trusted in Jesus the King who became a slave to make you children of God? Have you trusted in him alone for your salvation? You are commanded by the King who was once a slave to repent and believe in him and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, your word comes to us and it, it, is, it is filled with divine wisdom. And we thank you that whatever, whatever uh, a level or, or tier or, or group we belong to in life, whether we're the employed, whether we're the employers, whether we are the wealthy or the poor or the marginalized or the privileged, whatever we find ourselves in your sovereignty, we say thank you. Whether we suffer, we, we say thank you for your wise providence and your sovereignty that put us in this place. And then we say, Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word which meets us and dignifies each and every single one of us as, as, as people made in your image, as people called to work hard. Father God, we thank you for your word which teaches us that. We thank you that the word guides us how to have a, a Christian ethic, even in our workplace, how to, how, to, how to rule and how to work well to glorify God. But above everything, uh, more than all of these things that we thank you for, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself even to the cross so that you might be able to purchase and cure sinners for yourself whom you know. You knew that we would never be able to pay for ourselves. You knew that we were a lost, a tragically, profoundly fallen race because of sin. You knew that we had no way back to the Father or into the throne room in and of ourselves. And so you came and you gave yourself and you bled for us and you died for us so that you might be raised and in your resurrection give all who believe eternal life. Father God, I pray that you would, you would give that faith you would give a faith that trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation to people tonight who don't yet trust. Would you rebuke them and, and, and challenge them and convict them for their sin and point them towards the cross and say, there, find eternal life there. Father God, we thank you for your sovereignty, your mercy, and your grace. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we all said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.